Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. In this episode from our series exploring 100 ideas in genetics, we're looking at a couple of iconic images in evolution. The much-parodied March of Progress, portraying the inexorable journey from monkey to man, and the famous finches of the Galapagos Islands, which are supposedly the inspiration for Charles Darwin's theory of natural selection. Where do these infamous images come from? And do they really show what everyone seems to think they do? Before we start, just a reminder that you can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip or by email podcast at geneticsunzipped.com. We do know you're listening everywhere, so please do come say hi. And please, please, please do take a moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts if that's how you're listening. Or you could just tell a friend, send out a tweet, ping it over in an email or just tell them in the pub. It all helps more people to discover the show. Even if you don't know the name, the March of Progress, you'll undoubtedly recognise the image. Fifteen of our evolutionary ancestors lined up as if they're marching from left to right across the page, from knuckle-dragging monkey to upstanding modern man. And even if you haven't seen the original, which was first published as a four-page fold-out in the Early Man volume of Life Nature Library in 1965, then you'll definitely have seen a parody, either printed on a T-shirt or mocked up in a TV show. The pictures, which were drawn by natural history artist Rudolf Zallinger, were intended to give an accessible overview of 25 million years of human evolution. Zallinger may have been inspired by Thomas Henry Huxley's 1863 illustration in Evidence as to Man's Place in Nature. Huxley's images were intended to simply compare the skeletons of apes and humans, but Zallinger's innovation of making them walk across the page from left to right led people to believe it represented the evolutionary transformation of monkey into man. The image captured popular attention and was widely reproduced thanks to the fact that it was easy to understand and told a simple but memorable story about our human origins. Today, the March of Progress is probably one of the most widely recognised scientific images and it's an instantly recognisable shorthand for evolutionary progress. And like every other viral phenomenon, it's been widely reinvented and parodied by everyone from surfers to the Simpsons. Mike Keefe's evolution of communication is one of my favourite versions, showing us changing from ape-like early humans carving our first words in stone to sophisticated gentlemen reading books, back to ape-like creatures tweeting from our smartphones. It's even been used to display the improvement of iPhones over successive models. But unlike iPhones, humans were not created in a series of models, each with better specs and a more advanced camera, with each previous version becoming obsolete and extinct. Our evolutionary journey was far from straightforward, as were the paths taken by our hominid ancestors as they evolved into our modern-day ape relatives. Zallinger's simplistic picture of progress has therefore come in for increasing criticism over the years as our scientific knowledge about human origins has grown. People saw the image and may have interpreted it as each early human neatly morphing into the next more sophisticated upgrade, with the earlier model becoming extinct as a result. 
And maybe we can put the blame for a common creationist trope onto this picture too. If we came from monkeys, why are there still monkeys? <laughs> to be fair to Zalinger, he apparently never meant to imply that the evolution of man was a linear process. His captions even labelled some species as side branches and evolutionary dead ends. And the accompanying timelines in the book certainly didn't suggest direct continuity between species. Unfortunately, as the book's author F. Clark Howell put it, the graphic overwhelmed the text. It was so powerful and emotional. So it seems that evolution has not yet gifted us advanced humans with the ability to read captions before jumping to conclusions. So if the March of Progress is a misleading representation of human evolution, what should it really look like? To find out, I spoke to Chris Stringer, a research leader in human origins at the Natural History Museum in London. The truth is that human evolution was undoubtedly a messy affair. Chris told me that we're still not really sure how it happened, but we have learned a lot since Zalinger's illustration was published. And there's been a cascade of developments over the last 10 years, thanks to new fossil discoveries, advanced DNA sequencing and protein analysis technologies. According to Chris, one of the most important things we've learned over the past decade is that there was diversification during human evolution. And even within the last 100,000 years, there were five kinds of humans living on the planet. So if he got to redraw the iconic March of Progress... What should it look like? Well, it would be uh, rather than a, a tree trunk going up to a single you know, peak at the top. It's going to be a, a tree that's diversifying and the branches are mixing in now and again with each other. So it's a complex, you, know, you could call it a web, you could call it a network. So who are these mysterious humans in our ancient social network? Researchers think our ancestral line split into three about 1.5 million years ago, producing Homo sapiens in Africa, the Neanderthals in Eurasia, and a recently discovered species called Denisovans in Asia. While the Neanderthals are relatively well known, scientists discovered the Denisovans in 2010 when they found an ancient finger bone in a cave in Siberia with DNA that was neither Neanderthal nor modern human. Scientists have also found Denisovan remains in a cave in China, showing that the species must have been widespread. And they now believe that other fossil finds previously identified as Homo sapiens or Neanderthal may actually be Denisovan after all. These three human species coexisted in different locations around the globe for around 400,000 years, until Homo sapiens began to venture out of Africa, ultimately resulting in the demise of these other early humans. But this isn't even the whole story. Recent fossil finds have confirmed that other early humans coexisted with us at the same time as the Neanderthals and Denisovans. In 2003, archaeologists uncovered the remains of a tiny person, nicknamed the Hobbit, on the island of Flores in Indonesia. The species, now called Homo floresiensis, appears to have evolved there in isolation for over a million years before us Homo sapiens moved in. Then, in 2015, anthropologists discovered another early human species in the Rising Star cave system in South Africa. 
Named after the local language word for star, Homo naledi had a brain no bigger than a gorilla's, leading us to believe that it was a primitive human. However, it appears that the naledi placed their dead into the cave on purpose. This apparent sophistication, combined with the fact that they lived in an area populated by Homo sapiens, makes them very, very difficult to place in the history of human evolution. Chris Stringer thinks that there may be even more species of ancient humans that are yet to be discovered. He estimates that 90% of Africa was inhabited by people who left behind stone tools for us to find, but we only have fossils from relatively small areas. What's more, we only have one ancient human fossil from the entire Indian subcontinent. So what we've learned in the last 10 years is probably just the tip of the iceberg, and there's much more to come. So, there were definitely other species of humans around on prehistoric Earth. And there's plenty of evidence that these species didn't keep themselves to themselves. Although the arrival of Homo sapiens eventually spelled doom for any other humans in the area, there is mounting evidence that we not only lived alongside other species before their extinction, but we also interbred with them. The result of these get-togethers is that our modern genomes contain snippets of DNA from these other ancient humans. Most of us with European ancestry have around 2% Neanderthal DNA, and people of East and Southeast Asian descent also have Denisovan DNA within their genome. Most incredibly, in 2018, Ancient DNA researchers Vivian Slon and Svanti Pabo announced that they had discovered the remains of a female who died around 90,000 years ago in a Siberian cave, whose mum was a Neanderthal and whose dad was a Denisovan. But that's not all. Geneticists have found evidence of other ghosts in the human genome left from long-lost ancestral species that we haven't even discovered yet. While you might feel uncomfortable at the idea of having genes from human ancestors that we drove extinct hanging around in your genome, it might actually provide some benefits, which explains why these sections of ancient DNA have survived. The bits of Neanderthal DNA that persist in the modern human genome may help our immune systems. They may give us the ability to digest lactose and also contribute to the pale skin pigmentation found in Europeans and Denisovan DNA may help mountain-dwelling Tibetans survive life at high altitude. Unfortunately, it's not all good news, and researchers think that some of this ancient DNA is also associated with an increased risk of conditions like diabetes, autism and depression. The sciences of genetics, anthropology and paleontology have transformed our understanding of human origins. We've come a long way since the simplistic march of progress, and there's still a lot of work to do to untangle the complex web of interactions between ancestral species on the journey towards modernity. Our ancient dalliances may have left a lasting trace within our DNA, but all these archaic species are long gone. So why should we care about them? Who cares about how we evolved? Surely what's important is that we're here now. Well, for Chris Stringer, mapping out the origins of humanity not only tells us about where we've come from and helps us understand our place in the natural world, but it can also reveal where we might be going as our planet continues to change around us. Obviously, if global warming reaches the worst state that some people predict, 
then our planet is going to change more than humans have ever known before. And that's going to have a huge impact on our evolution. And I think, you know, if the tropics and subtropics become essentially uninhabitable for humans, you're going to end up with small numbers of humans at close to the North Pole and the South Pole doing their best to survive, that's going to drive our evolution uh, in completely unpredictable ways. Um, let's hope it doesn't go that far, but you know, my fear is that that may be the future of humanity. This is Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip and online at geneticsunzipped.com. Here's how the story goes. Two days after Christmas, in the year 1831, at the tender age of 22, Charles Darwin hops on a boat named the Beagle and sets off from Plymouth Harbour on an epic round-the-world voyage. One of the stops is the Galapagos, a cluster of small islands around a 1,000 kilometres off the coast of Ecuador, where the young naturalist observes and collects a number of different finch specimens. Comparing the finches from each island, he notices that they're all broadly similar, but with some varying features, such as the size and the form of their beaks and the shape of their claws. Each one seems perfectly suited to the different foods available on each island. Seeds on one, nuts on another, berries on another, and so on. Suddenly, it was crystal clear. Aha! The birds must have all descended from a common ancestor and then been isolated on each island, evolving separately to exploit the resources available. These diverse species became the inspiration for perhaps the greatest scientific idea of all time, the theory of evolution by natural selection, as detailed in his book, Origin of Species, which was finally published decades later. As a result, the birds became known as Darwin's finches, earning themselves a place in history as a true icon of evolution. Well, hold up just a second. Because while it's a nice tale, it's not actually true. It turns out that although Darwin did collect finches while he was in the Galapagos, he didn't pay much attention to them at the time. Initially, he believed that they were such a diverse set of birds that they couldn't possibly be closely related. He was much more interested in the links between species on the islands and on nearby continents, focusing instead on mockingbirds. When Darwin returned to England in 1837, he gave his finch collection to John Gould, a famous ornithologist. And it was Gould who pointed out to Darwin that the birds were much more similar than Darwin had first thought, belonging to 12 closely related but distinct species. With this revelation, Darwin realised that if the individual finch families were confined to different environments, this might account for the evolution of their different physical characteristics. Unfortunately, Darwin had been so uninterested in the finches at the time that he hadn't recorded exactly where he'd collected his specimens. Oh, no. He ended up having to talk to others who'd been in the Galapagos with him and who'd collected and properly labelled their own specimens to try and piece together where all the different species of finch had come from. 
Eventually, Darwin was able to put together enough evidence to support his wider theory that one species could transform into another over time. He published his comparison of finches in 1845, accompanied by the now iconic illustration highlighting the different beaks of the birds. He wrote, Seeing this gradation and diversity of structure in one small, intimately related group of birds, one might really fancy that from an original paucity of birds in this archipelago, one species had been taken and modified for different ends. But although Darwin did eventually find the finches at least a little bit interesting, they were just bit players in his grander theory of evolution. While he does discuss the divergence of birds in the Galapagos in his most famous book, On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, published in 1859, he doesn't specifically address the finches at all. So, while the finches of the Galapagos can't take credit for inspiring Darwin's theory of evolution, they did help to develop it, and they did provide evidence to support it. But how have they become so inextricably linked to the great man and his ideas? The first person to use the phrase Darwin's finches was English surgeon and ornithologist Percy Lowe, who first coined it in 1936, more than 50 years after Darwin's death. But the person who really popularised the concept of Darwin's finches was David Lack in his book of the same name, published in 1947. I do wonder if this is an author attempting to get a bit more publicity by trading on someone else's fame as Lack actually based his book on a bunch of finches collected by an American expedition to the Galapagos at the turn of the 20th century, rather than Darwin's own collection of birds. Either way, the name has stuck, and so has their scientific interest. Peter and Rosemary Grant, a husband and wife pair of evolutionary biologists at Princeton University, spent 40 years studying the finches on an isolated and uninhabited island in the Galapagos called Daphne Major. While it might sound a bit bleak, this is the perfect place to study evolution in action, as the island is home to 13 species of finch, including six species of ground finch. It was the medium ground finches, which eat seeds on the ground, that the Grants chose to study capturing, tagging and tracking around 20,000 birds during their four decades of research. They carefully weighed and measured each one of them, took blood samples and recorded their songs. The first few years of the study were relatively uneventful. Then, in 1977, drought hit the island. The dry conditions meant that there were fewer seeds available and those that remained were larger and harder on average than in previous seasons. As the Grants described it, beaks are tools, and these finches needed the right tool for the job. Alas, the drought killed off 85% of the island's medium ground finches. And the birds that survived were those with relatively large beaks that could crack large seeds. Their offspring also had larger beaks, leading to a lasting increase in the average beak size of the species. The Grants had caught evolution in action. So Darwin was right. Changes in food supply do drive changes in physical characteristics. Aha! While they may not be the evolutionary inspiration that they're sometimes made out as, 
Darwin's finches are still considered textbook examples of how a single species can differentiate into several new ones to exploit the available resources. And thanks to genetic sequencing, we now know that all 13 species of Galapagos finch are more closely related to each other than mainland finches, confirming Darwin's suspicion that they did indeed have one common ancestor. In fact, the birds are so closely related that there's been some debate as to whether they're actually separate species at all. According to the grants, they think they're somewhere in evolutionary limbo, not quite separate species, but somewhere in the grey zone in between. Unfortunately, as is the case for so many of the species on our planet, the birds of the Galapagos are now battling extinction. Around 80% of the birds on the islands are not found anywhere else, but the introduction of tourism and invasive species like rats, cats and flies is threatening their homes and their food supplies. For the ground finches, the introduction of blackberry bushes, which grow in dense thickets, prevents them from reaching the ground to feed. Coming full circle, Darwin's great-granddaughter, Dr Sarah Darwin, is now working with the Galapagos Conservation Trust to try and save the birds living on these precious and iconic islands. As well as inheriting her love of science from her great-grandfather, she's also a fan of the birds that he focused on instead of the finches, recently saying, The mockingbirds hold a particular place in my heart. They are cheeky, lovely, jaunty little birds, and I particularly love them. That's all for now. We'll be taking another dive into the depths of human history in a couple of months. But next time, we'll be looking at what happens when genetic testing unexpectedly reveals more recent hidden family secrets. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter, at Genetics Unzip, and please do take a moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference. Genetics Unzipped is presented by me, Kat Arney, with scripting and research by Emily Nordvang, and it's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, our logo was designed by James Mayle, and audio production is by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.